0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast where we talk, weirdly enough, about Star Trek Discovery. I'm your co-host, Chris Clow, and I am joined by our regular wonderful panel, Mr. Zaki Hassan. Hello. Mr. Cicero Holmes. Greetings. Greetings. (laughs) <laughs> and Ms. Rachel, Cl- well, no, Mrs. Rachel Cloud. I guess I we, Get it right. Sorry, we just got married. You, you of all people should know
1: that. Chris yes.
2: <laughs> married a long time. <laughs> yes. I,
0: I know it's it's really it's it's really
3: starting to go into longer territory, right? Now, you you may you may be on a shuttle to the penal colony soon.
0: Going to one way trip to Rurapente. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, uh, so we are now doing our second episode of this show, which was kind of, like I told you last week, snapped together at the last minute. But thank you to everyone who joined us for our very first outing and for people who are going to continue to join us as we delve into this new series. Uh, Pretty positive response to our first episode. A lot of people sounded like they had fun with it. So hopefully that's a trend we can continue. So, uh, but... You know, no futzing around this time. How's everyone doing? What was uh, what was the week in Trek like besides the new episode of Discovery? We, it's, I think that we're all kind of engaging with the franchise right now in various levels. So, uh, Zachy, did you continue your broadcast order rewatch with your kids? I did. Yeah. Uh, Just yesterday we watched Lower Decks, which is, you know, I
1: kind of dog on uh, season seven of Next Generation as being sort of the wind down quality wise of that series. But man, Lower Decks, that's like one of the best of, of the entire series.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually really like that episode too. In fact, uh, when I tried my hand at fan fiction, one of my, one of my, the, the core concepts that rose to the top of my brain was the survival of Cedo. and, uh, frankly, I have that's a feeling a,
1: you're, you're one of many who, who wrote that fanfic. I'm sure. Oh
0: yeah. No, I'm sure. And, and, <laughs> and yeah, and it's probably not the best of them either, but, uh, no, that's a great episode. I love the context that it gives and the world building that it does outside of the senior staff is really fun. It's it's honestly, it to me,
1: given that I watched it just mere hours before today's episode, uh, the the contrast could not have been more stark. And hopefully I can oh, sure. bring some of that up in our discussion today.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Rachel, you are rewatching Deep Space Nine, and I know because I live with you. But uh, <laughs> the most recent episode I had actually stepped out for, and you watched it.
2: Yeah, it was real bad.
0: (laughs) Um, Because you're on season three, right? Yeah, I believe so. So we're pre warf but post-Defiant. Yes, that is correct. And what happened in your episode?
2: Um, Dr. Bashir got a... He was psychically attacked, and he was in his brain, and all the other characters were there, except they represented parts of himself. And it Mm. was pretty weird they're all acting weird and
0: he got into the old man makeup for uh, yeah. akin to the deadly years from tos no kind of i remember that one yeah yeah not not my personally favorite one i think that's why i stepped out because i was i was I gonna
2: scoffed at you you were like ah, i'm gonna i'm gonna go to gamestop <laughs> for this one and i'm like oh, come on well, and then like halfway through i was like uh
0: it was uh, my futile right. my futile search for <laughs> for a super nintendo classic that uh unfortunately came up short but no. Still, you know, it's deep space nine, so how can you really complain, right? You know, that yeah, episode was... has a I mean
1: Alexander Siddick is great in that episode. Oh yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, I mean he's he's good in virtually everything that I've seen him in. In fact, I was one of the guys who was cheering when he was cast in Game of Thrones and I haven't seen it, but I know that he was cast as Rachel Ghoul. It was it, it was in either it wasn't Arrow, it was Ga- Gotham. Gotham. Yeah. Yeah. Have either of you guys seen that performance? Not yet. I haven't yet. Not yet. I'm. I'm. Okay, a, yeah.
3: I'm a season behind. I'm halfway through the third season of Gotham.
0: Okay. All right. Well, you're further than I am. That's for sure. But. Alexander Siddig, I'm going I'm, to, I'll, I'll cheer that casting. You know, can, but, uh, can, can
1: I just mention real quick, talking, while we're talking about Alexander Siddig as Dr. Bashir, in the broader context of his role in Star Trek and, and, and what it means to me as a person of, of Middle Eastern descent and a uh, Muslim heritage, you know, just I, as I mentioned, I'm watching Deep Space Nine with my kids. And I, you know, Dr. Bashir shows up and I tell my ear, I was like, oh, that, that's Dr. Bashir. And he says, his name is Bashir? Like that's his name on the show, and he could not believe that you have a Middle Eastern character on Star Trek. Yeah. Oh and that's great. he was so excited. Like and you know, it and it occurred to me what it means to be a kid his age and and to realize that this is possible.
3: Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, representation is important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Very much, and, and no better franchise to kind of hold up as an exemplification of that, at least in most right. cases, anyway. <laughs> uh, so Cicero, uh, how are you absorbing Trek other than Discovery? Is the Orville still scratching that itch, or did you have some other engagement? So
3: y- you know what's funny is I didn't even watch the Orville this week. Um, what what I did was um, I, I haven't recorded, I haven't watched it yet, but what I have done is is rewatch the first two episodes of Discovery? Um, oh, okay, you know, just just to kind of uh, fill in the gaps that I may have missed, and and to kind of give me a better sense of where this Trek is in the annals of 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 the entire universe, and uh, and and kind of preparing myself. For where they're uh getting ready to take us uh on on discovery, but I wasn't ready man i wasn't I wasn't ready for episode three boy <laughs> <laughs> well, we will get to that
0: shortly definitely uh as far as I'm concerned, I'm actually currently uh, Star trek is kind of always on in the background for me in some capacity or another. I revisited part of uh the cage on my lunch break today just because it's been a while since I watched it and that is such a unique episode i mean obviously it's the very first recorded star trek episode ever but on multiple levels i find it really interesting and extraordinarily cerebral uh but what i've mostly been spending my time doing as far as other engagement with the franchise is i've been listening to the audiobook of the recently released discovery tie-in novel called star trek discovery desperate hours it's written by David Mack. And interestingly enough, the audiobook is performed by a voice I'm very familiar with, Susan Eisenberg, who played wonder woman on justice league and justice league unlimited. Wow. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting so far. Uh, what I really like about it in re- in relation to watching discovery is that it gives a lot of very, very cool contextual information in regards to the professional rivalry of Michael Burnham and Saru. Hmm. Like, uh, Having read that and watching episode three where they first make eye contact, that it hit me a little harder than I expected because you realize, yeah, they kind of hate each other and they have kind of a good reason for hating each other. But I don't want to get into it too specifically, but I actually plan on um, reviewing it for sort of a separate episode of the podcast, like a short quickfire version when I'm finished haven't been able to power through it, unfortunately. But it's good. It's definitely worth reading and or listening to. So should keep that in mind. So, uh, yeah, why don't we jump in before we actually talk about the episode content. Uh, let's talk a little bit just about a couple of news items that came up in relation to the show and the franchise. So uh, some of the brief news items mostly relate to uh, the the critical reception that the first two episodes earned. And um, so according to Entertainment Weekly, the broadcast airing of the Vulcan Hello on CBS garnered 9.6 million viewers that translates to a 1.9 rating in the 18 to 49 demographic. But CBS also said that they expect those numbers to rise to 15 million viewers and a 3.0 rating when adding what they call seven days of delayed viewing. So it seems like uh, like a pretty strong showing for Discovery thus far, at least in a, uh, in a single broadcast. Uh, the show also set ratings records in Canada, drawing 1.17 and 1.2 million viewers respectively for the first two episodes on the Space Network, which actually makes it the most watched series audience ever on Canadian specialty TV. But it was also simulcast on Canada's CTV network, which brings its total combined viewership up to 2.2 million viewers, making it the third most watched series debut in Canada for 2017. So it seems like people were kind of ready for Star Trek to come back in some fashion. And, you know, in Canada, it's a little bit easier to consume the subsequent episodes because of its presence on Netflix Uh, in a bit of news that will likely surprise absolutely nobody. According to CBS, the show's premiere broke a new record for subscriber signups to CBS All Access in a single day, overtaking the previous record held by the 2017 Grammy Awards. So they, so, so uh, seven
3: people signed up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Quite possible, yeah. I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing how this wouldn't have happened. I'm sure that that was a headline that they had written maybe six weeks ago and we're just preparing to hit enter on so there it is but the one final news item that i wanted to touch on real fast and get the panel's full reaction to it doesn't need to be long comes from an interview in variety with executive producer and series writer akiva goldsman Uh, goldsman's name has sometimes been bandied about in fan circles in both positive and negative ways but If his uh, influence on Star Trek Discovery thus far is pronounced, then I don't really have anything bad to say so far. But he was specifically asked if Spock was at all likely to show up on Discovery, at least with the plans that they have now. And he said, quote, Right now we are really trying to be very gentle about any kind of direct intersection with what we would consider hero components of TOS. It's certainly mentioned, but it's not explored. Anybody have a reaction to that? Uh,
3: no. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so while I, while I understand definitely the that hero component line, um, and that makes sense. What I would love to see is some type of connective tissue from uh, from characters that we know, even. Even characters from the periphery of, of the TOS or Star Trek lore, Federation lore that make their way into, into, uh, discovery in, you know, in some type of memorable way. Um, you know, and, and in fact, I think it would be great if there was a character like, uh, like a Captain Pike, um, maybe before he becomes a captain, um, and, and has a, significant role uh, in in uh, discovery so that we can have some type of connective tissue between this show and and the shows that preceded or proceeded uh, in at least in the timeline.
1: Yeah I, I think exactly. I well I think I you know I what what Akiva Goldsman is is skirting around a little bit is if 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 you're talking about I think by hero component he means like the main characters from TOS and if you're going to say bring Spock on to Discovery, which would be the most obvious connection, the question then becomes who plays Spock, right? Because Zachary Quinto is the Spock of record. So you either bring him on or you find somebody else to be Spock. And if you find somebody else to be Spock, that creates a whole other set of headaches. And so I think what Akiva Goldsman is getting at is that they want to avoid that whole set of of uh, that minefield, if you will that 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 would erupt from having to do that.
0: Yeah, and and I certainly don't disagree with that. And you know, as I talked about last week, uh, you know, as a Tos fan primarily in the Star Trek franchise, I mean, I love Spock. So if Spock were to show up, I certainly wouldn't cry about it. But yeah, if it wasn't Zachary Quinto, then I would be concerned, mostly because I think I'd love to see. Quinto's take on Nimoy's spot right. because there is a noted difference. Um, wouldn't it, and wouldn't it since, be cool to
1: get like get Bruce Greenwood but have him
0: playing Jeffrey Hunter's Pike with the slick back yes. hair? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I would love to see those kinds of elements of of the Cage kind of explored. Rachel, you have a thought?
2: I think there's something to be said for developing your own characters in your own show and having the audience fall in love with them instead of bringing on the uh, characters that they already love and i know that like things that uh, kind of have annoyed me in star wars like Mm -hmm. in rogue one when they just have the creepy tarkin that is like not (laughs) uncanny valley yeah uncanny valley tarkin and leia um, is, I felt it was just a little bit like too much like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> like, oh, 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 oh. yeah. Yeah. So if they could avoid that, that would be good. Yeah. But and if they do it right, it,
0: yeah. Sure. And good. I can understand that too. Uh, it's just, you know, as we talked about briefly last week, this show is skirting up the, to the line as far as established continuity is concerned. And there might even be a little bit of an anachronism in the show so far that we'll get into when we actually talk about the episode. But, uh. I mean, the idea, we, we actually do know for sure that actress Mia Kirshner is going to be playing Amanda Grayson in a subsequent episode of okay. Discovery. And that'll be really interesting to see. I, I'm, I'm not really sure exactly what kind of role she will play. But, I mean, it, at that point, it's going to be like, okay, now we have everybody in Sarek's house except right. Spock showing up. On, well, and maybe Cybok, but let's not talk about him. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, hopefully if... I, have, I think you're right. If, um, if the show kind of starts to struggle, they might try to go to an established character as a crutch, and I would not really like to see it in that respect. But at the same time, too, if the story calls for it and if it would make more sense to show the crew of the Enterprise, because Pike has been commanding the Enterprise for at least two years by this point, and Spock is serving as a science officer on the enterprise under number one and under captain pike. So they're out there. The enterprise is out there as far as we know. And, uh, if they bring it in organically, that's one thing. But if it's mostly just for that wink, wink, nudge, nudge fan service that you're talking about, Rachel could be something else.
2: What would they do about the uniforms?
3: Oh my God. Yeah, and yes. then that, <laughs> it, yes. we
0: never talk that, about And it. that's another thing. And, Interestingly enough, that's actually directly mentioned in the book that, uh, that I'm talking that uh, the Discovery tie-in novel, because uh, Captain Pike and Spock and the Enterprise all show up in that book. And they make reference to reconciling the huge design philosophy differences. But uh, it would definitely be kind of a weird thing for canon to have to deal with. But uh, I, I would, we'll I would actually
3: be okay with uh, The Adventures of Young Spock um you know with with uh Michael Burnham and and a young Spock kind of you know maybe them sitting down at dinner or their you know to kind of discovering their relationship in a couple of flashbacks
1: like as a flashback yeah. when their kids are Sure of-
3: sure yeah yeah I Yeah
0: agree. sure and you know there are some discovery comics that are forthcoming and I have no idea what they're going to be about but as far as Spock's childhood in the prime timeline, the only thing that we've actually seen from Spock's childhood is that uh, the episode of the animated series, where real Spock encounters himself on Vulcan, and Sarek is in that episode, too. But, uh, no, I mean, there's definitely a lot of possibilities. It's hard to see exactly whether or not this philosophy of staying away from TOS heroes will be long-term. You know, but- if,
1: if I can just piggyback on that, I mean, when you think about it, on, on Next Generation, notwithstanding the, the McCoy cameo, uh, and, and the naked now, you know, sort of just, just redoing that episode. Other than that, they, and even that episode, they're like, oh, this, it was a previous enterprise and a captain James T. Kirk, like they're like, they've never heard of him. Right, if you, right, right. <laughs> but when you think about it, I mean, I mean, the first time they really embraced a pre TNG element was the episode Sarek. That's true. And it was fantastic. So, you know, it's I'm kind of like, and, and really that worked because it was like three seasons in. So it didn't feel like there.
0: It was like a sweeps month maneuver or something, you know? Sure. And, you know, Rachel's a big fan of the Greatest Generation podcast. And we actually went and saw those guys live when they were out here in Chicago, giving a bit of a commentary to Star Trek First Contact. I'm not a huge fan of that show because the only like major thing that they talk about is this is a Star Trek podcast from two guys who are sort of embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. (laughs) It's like, all right, so you're already trying to distance yourself from your fandom, which kind of rubs me the wrong way. But I did listen to their unification episode, and they even mentioned specifically, and I totally agreed with them, that TNG often tried to be so on its own that it was hard to realize that, hey, this is part of a cohesive universe where Kirk and Spock did blaze the trail in the Enterprise for a long time, well before that show was established. So we'll we'll see what happens, but uh, definitely interesting fodder for discussion. So now, without further ado, let's talk about Episode 3, Context is for Kings. Well, six months since Michael Burnham's court-martial, and uh, she's well-known throughout the Federation, apparently, as someone who started a war with the Klingon Empire, and she's apparently counting all the casualties. But right out of the gate, episode three, we finally get our very first look at the namesake of the show, the USS Discovery, in a decidedly heroic light. And uh, one of the th- this, I wanted to touch on this first because, you know, a staple of most post-TOS Star Trek, particularly at least since the motion picture, is giving the primary starship that we're going to be spending our time with a heroic, majestic introduction. So, did the introduction to the starship Discovery give you that same sense of majesty, that same sense of uh, of
3: heroism, Cicero? Well, you you definitely felt. That this ship was was state of the art. Um, You know, obviously they were uh, one of the inmates. The uh, troublemaker, ball troublemaker, um, was was one to mention right off the bat that the the uh, that the ship itself had no no scratches, no bruises, no scuffs. Even on the floor, right. so um, so I you know I definitely felt like oh okay well here we are this is if not the flagship of the fleet it is definitely one of the flagships of the fleet um, there is something mm-hmm. unique about this ship um, and you know definitely something different from the senshu so um, so I did feel uh, you know when I fi- when you finally get to see it. I was like, "Oh, it's the discovery! Finally, here we are!" Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, and I was okay with it. Yeah, setting the table, Zachy.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, they, they did a nice job of of making it seem, uh, as you said, majestic. But while also, uh, you, you get a sense of the sort of the internal geography of the ship, uh, which is always difficult to do on on first blush. But also, uh, making it seem. You know, different from from sort of the Constitution class, which is our uh, shorthand for this kind of thing. Uh, and for that, I mean, it, it looks internally, it looks different from the Star Trek ships that we've seen, even the hallways and things. It it has it has an architecture and and whatnot all its own. And I appreciated that. Sure, Rachel.
2: Yeah, I liked it. I liked how mysterious it was, and it can do 17 different science missions at once, (laughs) and it has a black alert, which (laughs) was, like, really, like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, I just, I really liked how much of a mystery it was. It really held my interest.
0: Sure, and and just for the record, it is a Crossfield-class starship, so... Kind of a uh, kind of an interesting introduction there. Uh, it worked for me generally. I uh, I like the design. From what I understand, it is actually left over from uh motion picture Ralph McQuarrie design, which is awesome. I was, yeah, I was going to so, mention that.
1: It 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 reminded me of those rejected designs. it's it, I didn't know mm-hmm. that it was actually that. That's really funny.
0: Yeah, it's it's cool. It seems like that's kind of something that. They're they're going with because even Star Wars Rebels uh, made use of Ralph McQuarrie's oh, designs right. for for that show. So he definitely captured the I guess the zeitgeist of that kind of era of science fiction. So seeing that pushed forward is is pretty cool. Now uh, one thing that I wanted to briefly touch on was that you know we're in the year twenty two fifty six. This is a brand new ship, as Cicero said, as as the prisoners noticed but a ship that launched 11 years beforehand the uss enterprise the register number is quite a bit higher cuz discovery is ncc1031 and obviously the enterprise is 1701 is this an anachronism or is there just like something that we don't know about how starship registry numbers are assigned Does anybody I, have a thought i think on that,
3: that maybe it has to do with the class of the of the ships potentially Okay. You know, if if you know mm-hmm. if I can toss out a fan theory for how this uh, how this anachronism works within the canon, um, you know, as you said, this is a cross class uh, uh, Federation ship versus versus the Constitution class that the that the Enterprise is. Mm-hmm. So maybe with the Enterprise uh, or or with Constitution classes, they started with you know maybe seventeen, yeah, 17- maybe seventeen hundred. And, you know, mm-hmm. and,
1: and. Yeah. but the enterprise registry number transcends the constitution class, though.
3: Hmm. Oh, well, then, you know, throw my theory out. <laughs>
0: We're done with that. <laughs> well, it, it's just interesting that they decided to do it this way. I mean, and obviously, it's not a big deal. This is a pedantic fan detail that people like us will notice, which is why I wanted to bring it up. But uh, I mean, it's not going to have any real impact, at least as far as we know, on what they're actually going to do in the show. But it—I mean—you just kind of wonder, they—they knew. I mean, they had to have known. So what's the reasoning behind? And maybe it'll be fodder for another episode.
2: Wasn't there something similar that had happened in Star Trek Beyond, where Idris Elba's?
0: Oh yeah, the Franklin. Weird. The because the Franklin—I can't remember exactly what it it was—an NX registry number, but it was. Uh, it was quite a bit higher than zero one, even though it had launched right before the dawn of the Federation. And conceivably, you know, the Franklin crash before the point of divergence with the prime reality and the alternate reality. But yeah, they do seem like they play a little fast and loose. With,
1: I, you know, I, I treat this stuff like, like the original series did with star dates. It's like, a eh, bunch of numbers, sure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. Which is weirdly enough though, something that they are paying attention to. The at least as far as we know, the star date numbers correspond with an era of canon that we haven't seen before. So it's it's interesting what they pay attention to and what they apparently just say. Right. Oh, sure. you know, let's, just, let's just go with it. I mean, again, not a big deal.
2: I think I think that they assign them using a Complex algorithm <laughs> that we cannot possibly understand
0: because of our primitive 2017 yes. brains. Yes, there we yeah. go.
1: G- give give her the no right. prize. Yes, yes, you get the no
0: prize. I'll take it. I'll take it and hand it to you, of course. Good. All right. So uh, next thing I thought that it would be good to talk about is the secondary characters, and I'm not going to dole these out in any specific order. We don't need to comment on specific ones unless you want to go through the list. But we all have a list uh, in front of us of the secondary characters on the show, so why don't we just talk about our impressions? Zachy, why don't you go first?
1: Uh, well, it, it's—I mean, it tells you something that I'm—I'm I'm struggling with their names. Um, I th- there's the the perky young space cadet, uh, Tilly. Um, yeah, yep, Sylvia Tilly. <laughs> uh, she, she initially she. Uh, Got on my nerves a little bit, uh, but by the end of the episode, I I was like, okay, I kind of get her her place in this. Um, I I didn't really understand uh, what like the, setting her up with having like this uh, uh, disorder where where she's she's uh, I don't even know the details exactly of what it was. It's like. Uh,
0: she right. snored in her yeah. sleep, and she's yeah. got allergies.
1: So okay, allergies. Yeah. yeah. So so it, it, that's one of those things where I was like, okay, so I guess she doesn't have any friends, so she's gonna be her friends. Like you know, you start doing like movie math, or you start connecting where things go. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I thought Anthony Rapp's character it was an interesting introduction to him. Now I I go into this movie with with the baggage of Anthony Rapp being the the douchebag in school ties who's like super anti Semitic. So I'm kind of like making these connections that I shouldn't be making, you know. So so he's, like, very unlikable already, so I'm waiting to start liking him. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and, and then I'm I, i I'm assuming you don't think of Captain Lorca as a, as a secondary character.
0: No, 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 no. I have a whole—we're we're all going to touch okay, on Captain so, Lorca. Okay, so
1: that, that's it for me then, yeah, until we get
0: to— Okay. Yeah, so just before I hand it off to you, Cicero, so we're talking about the Chief of Security, Commander Ellen Landry, who's played by Rika Sharma,
1: I believe? Yeah. Or Rekha
0: Sharma? Rika Sharma, yeah. And then uh, the science officer, Paul Stamets, who's played by Anthony Rapp. Cadet Sylvia Tilly, played by Mary Wiseman. And, of course, Commander Saru, played by Doug Jones. And uh, three of those four characters, everybody but Landry, is apparently a regular. So uh, so we're starting to get a, a look at the fully formed cast. But, Cicero,
3: who left an impression on you? So, I, you know, the... The one thing that I'll say, oh, you know what? Before I even say any of that stuff, I've got to say one thing. There was one initial problem that I had with the introduction of the discovery, um, along with with you know when everyone was walking through the halls of of the of the ship, and it was you know same douchey bald criminal guy says as he's looking around this apparent science science vessel. Uh, Sees all the military guys and he says, oh, black badges. You haven't seen those before. I've never seen those before. And, you know, there's two seconds later, they cut to Michael Burnham and she's wearing a black badge. (laughs) That's <laughs> <laughs> <wearing a> pla- <laughs> true. That's true. I
0: I did make note of that in in uh, in my time watching right. the episode as well. But yeah, yeah. Seems
3: a little yeah. Um, you know that was that was a, a really really weird thing. Um, the other thing that I'll I'll mention as an overall uh for the for the characters is I feel like while the performances were all really good, I feel like everyone was typecast. Yeah. Um, huh. so oh, really? uh, Rekha Sharma. Who, who played uh, chief of security Ellen Landry was also in Battlestar Galactica and spoiler alert for Battlestar. she is a Cylon um so you know so again so she's playing this character who who is is, is duplicitous at best, right um, sure. and she was also in in a show that I think is very, very underrated. Uh, she was in the hundred. Where she uh, she played a duplicitous character as well. Um, so it it like it, and and as this episode goes on, you you realize that that again is is the same type of character that that she that she, that she plays uh, here on Discovery. Anthony Rapp, uh, you know his science officer Paul Stamets. Um, I, I I I found it really interesting how. Easily officers within within this version of the Star Trek universe are willing to uh, discount the the wisdom of their of their commanding officers, specifically their captain. Sure. Um, And I thought that uh, in the way that it was done by by command, uh, you know, by Lieutenant Commander Stamets, I thought it was I thought it was really well done. Like his his arguments were were fair arguments um, and, and, you know, and his angst and his anger about uh, his treatment, the treatment of his colleague and the things that they, the experiments that they were doing and how uh, the Federation has just used him as a tool as opposed to allowing him to, to him and his and his colleagues to do work that could have been beneficial for all of, uh, you know, not just humanity, but all of the federation. Was, was stuff that, that really kind of resonated with me. But I just felt like, you know, wow, this guy is okay with just being a dick. Like, wow. I mean, that's, that's crazy. (laughs) But again, these are, this is a type of character that, 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 uh, that Anthony Rapp has played in the past. So it was, you know, it was easy for him to kind of fall in, fall in line with that. Uh, Cadet Tilly, this is her very first role. And what do they make her do? They make her become a, a cadet. So she's a cadet, or the first time she's ever been on screen for anything. The first time her credits, uh, her name is in the credit is is her being, you know, a new a newbie. And I thought what was weird for her was that I felt like tonally she was just too plucky for huh. for the way they've already set up this universe this universe is is very is very gray is very grim there is not a lot of humor and the humor that is there is dry um to have someone who was kind of very bubbly at least initially uh just it, it kind of seemed jarring but I, you know I, look i appreciate who she is and i appreciate her motivations and i understand the character at the a, after the end of the episode um i really love the I really love the relationship between Saru and and Burnham. And it may be antagonistic, but it's very respectful. Um, It's a respectful antagonism, kind of like the Yankees and the Red Sox. Go Yankees. (laughs) Rachel?
2: Uh, So I want to just point out that I don't know who Anthony Rapp is. And I can't recall ever seeing him before. And I also disliked paul stamets (laughs) so it wasn't you know it wasn't your preconceived notion okay it it was he was unlikable and i felt like um maybe i should have liked him because he's like the scientist who's rebelling against the authority and the people who are (laughs) trying to take his his pure research but i just like i hated him um
0: you can't see it, but her eyes what? are going red.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and um, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed that he's a regular. I was I was thinking he might bite the bucket with the <laughs> space monster. but
0: He's a regular, well. but interestingly enough, he's not the chief science officer. So we'll have to see exactly whether – I'll be really interested to see whether or not – the uh, the show fills out or profiles the bridge crew of the Discovery because right now the bridge crew is kind of irrelevant outside of Captain Lorca and outside of Saru. But if, only, if I'm not mistaken,
1: he's he's supposed to be uh, uh, the first like gay character in the Prime Universe, right?
0: Oh, I wasn't familiar with that.
1: It, I, I believe that's the case. Sorry if I'm spoiling well, something, but I'm I'm it it got some play. It, I mean, it year, definitely so.
3: read that way in his conversation with his colleague. Um, it, you know, like as I was, I was sitting with, uh, with some other people, some friends of mine, when, uh, when the, when we were watching the episode and we all read it the same way, independent of each other. Um, that this, this conversation was not only just a conversation between two lifelong friends, but potentially two lovers. Um, and, uh, so I don't know if that's what, they were going for and you know uh zaki you you've uh heard something that we kind of read and you know it was very well done because we read the same thing well, we now
2: i feel bad because he was probably being a jerk because he was sad that
0: that, that he is, died yeah yeah, that well, it does kind of put things. I'm sorry,
2: Paul. You know, Stone. you know
1: I, what I do think is interesting about the Stamets character, and this is something that somebody on my Facebook brought up, and I should bring this up. It it brings to mind Nicholas Meyer's connection to this show, given that his, you know, in uh, his role on Star Trek II was really introducing this notion of scientists being at odds with Starfleet. Sure. And yeah, you see that reflected here in a way that we haven't seen
0: since then. Right, which seems kind of short-sighted when you mention that specifically. But I guess you know that was just kind of the the status of the franchise at that point, because you know Meyer very openly favored the idea of going a little more militaristic with Starfleet, and that's it right. sounds like Gene Roddenberry was always resistant to that. That's right. But uh, but yeah, no, we'll have to we'll have to keep an eye on that going forward, and that's actually a discussion point that I wanted to bring up a little bit later, but. Uh, Just to put a pin on the secondary characters, um, I'll just say, Saru, I think you get a much better perspective on him in this episode, even though he's in it comparatively less. Uh, And, you know, I think the book might be coloring my perceptions of him a little bit, but you obviously get the impression just in this episode specifically that he's a very ambitious guy and that his ambition has finally been rewarded with uh, the second piece of command or the the second level of command on a starship. So like Cicero alluded to before, you know, it is very respectful. The the uh the relationship that he has with Michael Burnham, he clearly does have a respect for her, but he and he openly says though that he's also very wary of her. So that's a dynamic that I'm going to be really really keen to see evolve over the course of this show. But now We all get the chance to talk about probably the most consequential character introduced on the series since Michael Burnham, Captain Gabriel Lorca, the commanding officer of the Discovery. So Captain Lorca definitely has what I think you can quantify as a looming presence Hmm. uh, in his ship and on his bridge. But what do we think overall of Captain Lorca? Rachel?
2: Well, I think speaking of typecasting... (laughs) When you see Jason Isaacs shrouded in sh- shadows and dark lighting, and looking out the window with the creepy space reflected on his eyes, like you, you get evil vibes. <laughs> it's true. And I really just thought he he was definitely putting off some evil admiral vibes, and how the admirals always seem to be kind of working against our our hero captains in the previous. Shows I felt like maybe they're setting him up to have a sort of a similar role with Michael Burnham, um, although it didn't really—he wasn't too evil.
0: Well, at, at least not in the eyes of uh, of some of the characters, but there were others who vocalized their concerns. That's, yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah, I guess uh, keeping a monster was kind of a, <laughs> yeah, well.
0: We'll get we'll we'll, we'll get to that. that was we'll, a we'll, little we'll bit to. evil, Admiral. <laughs> Zachy, how about you?
1: Man, you know, I as as the episode progressed, I found myself really liking the 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 way Jason Isaacs was portraying him. I mean, he he brought a real richness to the character while keeping him really close to the chest and and that I I really plugged into that. And and I just love Jason Isaacs. I think he he tends to play really interesting characters in interesting ways. And so as the episode ended, I, like i felt like that it, it was it was opaque enough where i'm like please don't like have a heel turn happen you know like i'm still hoping that they're they're teasing us a little bit but that in fact he's going to be he he's going to fly in the face of what they seem to be pointing towards sure
3: yeah
0: i can see that I, you know Cicero? i keep
3: thinking back to uh last week with our the the uh Viewer question or the the listener question about whether or not this show had more DNA from from uh, Star Trek or from Game of Thrones, and 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 I think oh, that okay. yeah, what what we're seeing in, in these portrayals is and you know and and then you know of course Jason Isaacs uh, uh, portrayal of, of Captain Lorca is this this moral amb- ambiguity that that is is kind of more realistic or at least more realistic to today's sensibilities. That that you know that there is a person that you know may be Captain Taxidermy, but may also <laughs> may may also uh have everyone's best wishes you know, in hand, and I don't think, Zachy, that that we're gonna get a full heel turn. I think what we'll what we'll have is yeah. we will have people that are or fans watching the show be conflicted about how they feel about the about the captain, and 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 I think it you know will leave us. Um, it will it will if they do it right, will leave people in this in this kind of online war about. Are you team captain or are you not team captain? And and people arguing almost the same points for either side. And so it sounds, sounds like Captain Jellicoe. <laughs> there you
0: go. Yeah. Well, you know, at the at the very least, though, you never questioned that Captain Jellico was acting in the best interests of his crew. Touche. At least I didn't. I Touché. mean, you're right. He, I despise him. I really dislike (laughs) Captain Jellicoe because my favorite TNG character is Commander Riker. So when they butt heads, I'm automatically going to go to Riker's side. But uh, yeah, I mean with Captain Lorca, he definitely does give off a, a mysterious, a more mysterious vibe than I was certainly expecting. I didn't think that it was going to be so, uh, so ambiguous as far as what his real intentions and motivations were. I mean, he has right. a Tribble yeah. in his office. Certainly, it can't be <laughs> that bad, right?
2: <laughs> I'm going to dissect the Tribble later.
0: <laughs> well, uh, hopefully not. My God, this, it's horrifying. His office but, is like uh, the
1: trophy room of the yeah, Predator. Really oh, is. my gosh.
0: Was that a Gorn skeleton in that research lab that we saw him in? It certainly looked like it. Uh, apparently, it is. I, I, I think that's been confirmed. Holy cow. Well, I wonder what he had to go through to get that thing. But... uh no, I mean, I'm really, really intrigued to see what happens with Lorca, whether or not he ends up being a Voldemort or a Snape, hmm. to, to oh. steal a little bit of a, yeah. <laughs> of, of a reference from another universe. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see because if he's that kind of dark... Character, you say a Lucius up-
1: Malfoy or a Snape, yeah,
2: that would be more.
0: That, that, yeah, I guess. I guess that's that's yeah, true. Lucius yeah. Malfoy
2: had a little bit of a redemption at the end.
0: Well, a little bit, <laughs> just because he was interested in keeping his child protected. <laughs> right. But that's for another show. <laughs> All, right. All right, something else entirely. But uh, so next point, then right away, and we kind of alluded to this already, but almost as soon as we, as the audience, step aboard the discovery. Something seems amiss about this ship that is apparently positioned as a science vessel, but that has a more overt military presence on board than we may not have seen since the Makos stepped aboard Enterprise to take care of the Zindi. Uh, so it's definitely, it, it. that's where I feel like some of the Meyer influence is starting to uh, seep into the show overall quite a bit more. I mean, of course, we're at war, the Federation's at war with the Klingon Empire, so you're going to need to be on a heightened state of alert, especially if they're stepping close to Klingon space. But um, one of the things that I found interesting is that, you know, the project that Discovery is working on definitely seems like something that is atypical For both a science ship and a military ship. And what I mean by that is it's the intersection of both. And there's something else that's part of this that we'll get into later. But I wanted to ask Rachel first, as a career scientist herself, you know, we're starting to get the idea of exactly what Discovery is working on. And there was quite a bit of science that I'll put in quotes because I'm not quite sure yet. But so Stamets was trying to lay it down to Michael Burnham to, to kind of lay the groundwork before we actually really know what's going on. How did that translate and did it seem at least possible on the fringes, on the far fringes that science fiction normally operates in? (laughs)
3: Um,
2: (laughs) i think uh uh paul stamets he said a lot of words that were uh science words and they didn't really fit together in a cohesive theory that i'm aware of i think the word panspermia was in there but also spores and i i don't know so i'm not a particle physicist um, but I am a biologist, and I can't say that in my biological opinion, I don't know of any funguses that are able to uh, um, transport you faster than the speed of light with their spores, <laughs> and I don't really know how that would be possible, even in – I mean, I have only the most rudimentary understanding of quantum physics, but I – I am not familiar with the spores being particles of the universe or, or anything like that. And it was kind of annoying. I think that the the best science on Trek is when they take, like, a theory that's a real theory and then kind of take it, you know, beyond what's known about it now. Like, I'm thinking of the episode where of TNG where Worf starts going through all the different universes. Mm-hmm. And so, like the like multiverse is like a a real theory
0: parallels, I believe is what that episode was called. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, And then they, they kind of made that into like a a plot point. Um, When you start making up your own things, it starts sounding really strange to people who know what those words mean.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) So you called it, what did you call it earlier? Word salad, word salad. That's right. Word salad. Well, maybe it's just our 2017 brains have no conception of what this could it's possibly true. be. It's Maybe I
2: just am completely underestimating fungus. <laughs> Trust the fungus. It's a deep cut.
0: There you go. Yeah. Well, see, and that's uh, I'm, I'm, this is another reason I'm glad you're on this show is because you can you can tell us what's word salad and what isn't. But uh, well, the larger central theme. Well, first of all, before we go to what at least I interpreted to be the larger central theme. Uh, Obviously, we know that the sister ship of the Discovery, the USS Glenn, which I think is named after the late John Glenn, uh, was operating in a sort of a similar place as far as the secret research is concerned. How about that away mission? Zaki, what were your impressions of that away mission? Oh, man. You know, it
1: it was very unTrek like And I, I thought it was interesting that they went there. So early in the run, I mean, it's it's almost like a a demarcation point like, hey, this is you know, as cliche as it sounds. This is not your father's Star Trek. We're going mm-hmm. we're going uh, aliens, like hardcore, right? right up top. and and i i don't I don't say that by the way, in in a negative way. i you know I, I'm able to roll with it, but definitely it 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 sets you uh, on on what kind of tonal ground this show intends to be, which is which is dark and gritty um uh, right up top you know yeah
0: yeah absolutely
1: Cicero, well, um, how did
3: it strike you so two decembers ago i watched uh, star wars episode 7 the force awakens and han solo had his uh, had his barge and he had to run away from his Rathars. so i mean immediately that's what i thought like there, there was there was such so the so I love the the conversation with the with the scientific word salad on the on the shuttle on the way to the Glen. Um, I thought that was great. Um, it, it, you know, everything screamed ominous. Goofy uh, monster is about to pop out when they when they arrived on the ship, and then they have the Klingon do the shush. Right before you knew he was going to get snatched <laughs> cool. was, um, was it, you know, was a little ham fisted for me. Um, and then, and then of course, like, you know, like Zachy said, this is not, you know, this is not your father, Star Trek. Um, and they, you know, it, it, it really feels like overall, and, you know, maybe I, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm killing the ending right now but by, by saying this, but I, I think overall, um, I feel like the showrunners, liked Star Trek or believe they really like Star Trek, but never were, they weren't the fans of the, of the series and of the franchise that the four of us are. Um, And I don't even think I'm the greatest, the biggest of Star Trek fans. I think, you know, I love the series. I love the franchise, but I think what they loved was the reboot, the JJ Abrams movie reboots. I felt like that's what Star Trek is today. And that is the show they are making, a show for those fans right now, um, and
0: see, and I can I can see that perspective a little bit, but the only place that I'll uh, that I'll slightly disagree with you about is what we're going to talk about next, and that's the right. the larger central theme because it was playing with an idea. That the, the movies in the alternate reality certainly haven't played with and kinds of ideas that Star Wars usually doesn't try and touch, at least in relation to the modern world. I think you're right. You're, you're definitely right as far as uh, action beats are concerned and as far as keeping people's attentions in ways that uh, that take advantage of the the creepy unknown aspects of the most unforgiving environment that humans can possibly experience being outer space. Uh, You know, the cold mystery of the darkness is definitely something that seems like it's it's much more in vogue in science fiction now than it certainly used to be.
2: Yeah, I just I thought this was really awesome as like a horror set piece. Sure. Because it was like scary. And I think I think the idea of like an abandoned spaceship or a spaceship that something happened on and you don't know what it is, is just so scary to me. Yeah. Um, and I think it was well done and I really liked the Klingon shushing. <laughs> like, I thought that was like, I was like, oh, it's a Klingon. And he's like, shit. Like, oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he's smart enough to, you know, have his survival instincts kick in and not start fighting them when he knows that something bad well, is Well, that's about why to he's the only
2: one left alive, There you go. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably. But yeah, I think you guys, I agree with you guys that maybe it's not really Trek. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and Zach, you mentioned aliens and I got a little bit more of an alien vibe at least before uh before the creature had showed up. Yeah. Uh, I'll you know, go with that. The, the uh well, and you get kind of a John Carpenter thing vibe too when you come upon yeah. what happened yeah. to the they corpses.
3: Were very very true. Yeah. Like uh you know, really shout that out was, to yeah. yeah, shout out to rough. the uh to the, you know, the the costume department and the, and the makeup teams um because that was that was really, really well done.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not something I expected to see on that episode. That is for damn sure. But uh, yeah, so we get off of the ship and we start to learn a little bit more about the specifics of the uh, of the relationship between uh, the crew, the scientific aims of some of the elements of the crew. And the more militaristic side that's led by the chief of security and of course the captain. And you know, the conversation that Burnham has with Stamets and Stamets automatically being wary of her because it was Lorca that wanted her there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he even described Lorca as a warmonger, which I don't know if we have necessarily enough context to to see if that accusation is accurate from Lorca. But the fact that Stamets thinks so, and that he's a man of science who very clearly lays out the fact that he is excited by the idea of discovering something about the universe that was not previously known, you definitely get the idea overall that one of the central larger themes is scientific discovery, no pun intended, being co-opted by the military for less than admirable aims. So... Did this idea do you guys think get communicated effectively enough? Or are we just now getting the sense that it's being laid down in episode three so that they can run run with it long term in however many episodes we have left in either the season or maybe beyond that we have we not yet seen the full implications of this, Rachel? Well, I think time
2: will tell. I I think that's interesting that I I don't really, I'm not convinced that that's the full long-term theme of the series, mm-hmm. or, or that they'll necessarily even have a, a long-term theme. I think it might just be sort of these fun action vignettes every week, and it might not have, like, a higher parable mm-hmm. value or or message to say, and... and that would be sad if it didn't. So, I mean, I, I hope that it has a message like that. And that would be an interesting message to have.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, I, I, I don't really know.
0: What about the idea itself of military co-opting of science? Is that something that might actually be a, an element of the scientific community that always needs to be kept in mind?
2: Um, I don't personally feel like the military is trying to like take my research to (laughs)
0: um
2: to hurt people uh i think that the department of defense is like a part they fund a lot of science and they fund a lot of science that helps people in other areas besides just the military and so i think it's it's more of a two-way street where Mm -hmm. like scientists discover things and they're they're taken i mean obviously like the atomic bomb is, is one right, thing. Yeah, um, that is kind of an extreme example. But there's also that the the military wants certain technologies, and they're willing to pay you to develop them, and they end up helping everyone. Like I know, um, like uh, suspended animation is something they're very interested in, mm-hmm. um, and so like we might get that sooner than we would have otherwise, and it could be helpful to everyone.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, very valid perspective. Cicero, how about that idea? You think it's something that was communicated and or is it going to be uh, run with? I think it was touched at on,
3: uh, at least initially. And I think that it will be a big part. Of, I think if if they're wise, I think that it'll be a big part of the overall theme of the season, if not the series in general. I think that it is a flaw of humanity to take scientific discovery and weaponize it. I mean, since the invention of fire, Sure. you know, or the, I mean, the <laughs> discovery of fire, I mean, you can't really invent something, but, uh, you know, invent fire. But but since the discovery of fire, when when man realized that they could use this for warmth, they also, the next thing that they realized that they could do with it is use it to destroy. And, and you know, sure. uh, I, I definitely think that that even you know even though as Rachel said that the, you know the Department of Defense throws money at issues that wind up ultimately benefiting humanity um, they're not the ones that are coming up with these theoretical ideas they're not scientists you know they're military people mm-hmm. and and you know they hire scientists to think of things at a theoretical level that says you know theoretically, these things could be possible, and then and then the next question is, well, what can we do to weaponize that? And if we can't weaponize it, then we're not going to throw any money at it. And if we can weaponize it, then we will. And and you know, and and that doesn't it doesn't make make it necessarily a negative, um, because you know, obviously there are benefits to security and even proactive security, um, but. But, uh, I mean, it is, it is definitely, it is what it is type of scenario. So, um, you know, so, uh, I, I would, I would really be happy to see them dive deep into that conversation and, and allow that to be another one of the pieces of dialogue that come out, uh, for fans as they're talking about this series. Sure.
0: Zachy? You know, I, I have a
1: couple. I'm I'm of two minds on this. I I think on on one level, I'm I feel like the the concept of Starfleet as it exists in this period, specifically, sort of canonically, is such that it would belie um, uh, Paul Stamets's interpretation. So, in other words, we should the the arc of the show should, if Starfleet is what we believe it to be. Uh, it, it it should be in in essence we should end up reprimanding his assumption he should be proven wrong, right? Mm-hmm. However, a thought that I had it's it's funny how how I started thinking about it I was like you know, uh, the 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 way that uh, uh, Captain Lorca is acting is like uh, William Sadler on Deep Space Nine, and I was like wait Section Thirty
3: One Discovery
1: Ten Thirty
0: One.
3: Whoa! Whoa.
0: <laughs> Mind just, blown. We've
2: just blown it wide open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so
1: I'm I'm wondering if is that by accident? You know, I don't know. That is
0: that's <laughs> wow. That's an excellent question. Uh, I'm, I I mean I was certainly really engaged in the arc of section 31, and I actually really. Uh, thought it was appropriate how they used Section Thirty-One in Star Trek Into Darkness, but uh, and and I mean, they're
1: around in the Enterprise era too, so we know they that are. they they're around at this time in in history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, well, definitely something we'll have to keep an eye on as we as we go forward in the show. I mean, um, because Section Thirty-One is obviously at the forefront of the creation of. Helpful science that the Federation is always engaging in, but, you know, with militant concern for keeping the, the UFP safe from... Which,
1: which sure seems to fit uh, Captain Lorca like a glove based on what we've seen so far.
0: Yeah, it does. And, you know, now that you mention it, I mean, he mentions at the at the very end of the episode, uh, Michael, don't worry about your court-martial. And it seems like, wait a second, does a captain really have the authority Right. To uh, to supersede what what happened at a court martial when it comes to sentencing an officer for mutiny, but Section thirty one might I mean you never really it's it's yeah well now I'm just <laughs> rambling because my mind is racing but but uh, wow yeah we'll definitely have to have to keep that keep a pin in that to see how that's explored now as we wind down the discussion of episode three we haven't really spoken at length too much about Michael. So uh, so as we kind of try and give our final thoughts on this third episode, uh, also weave in uh, your thoughts about Michael's participation in it, what we've seen from her. Certainly she displayed a significant amount of skill, uh, when, especially when she was escaping the Glen. But, uh, Zaggy, why don't we start with you? Final thoughts on episode three and how it positioned Michael Burnham.
1: Well, you know, uh, a friend of mine on Facebook, Tyler Kloster, mentioned this in response to this episode. And ever since he said it, it's just been rattling around in my head. He said, this should have been the first episode. Mm. And I've been thinking about that since he said it, because I find that a really compelling statement. I love the idea of jumping in with Michael Burnham on this prison ship. And that's our first introduction to her. And we, as the audience have to sort of catch up and figure out and, and make all these assumptions and about her and let that, let that information that, that flows of her happen gradually, kind of like lost, you know? Uh, and, and so in, in relation to your question, I really liked the way this episode laid it out to her, because I, 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 have been viewing it from the framework. Cause if I have if I hadn't seen either of the previous episodes, would I track, would I be on her side? And I think it actually does a really good job of, of giving her agency. It demonstrates her intelligence. It, it shows that she's charismatic. She can handle herself in a fight. And, uh, I love the the little tease. I love the fact that, let's say, if if we knew nothing about uh, Sarek from the previous episodes, I I love the idea that she's like, oh, and my my human foster mother, oh, what was her name? Amanda. And, like, if you didn't know anything, it would just blow your mind.
0: Yeah, that's true. Totally. And uh, quick quick shout out, too. Apparently, she, and the name escapes me at the moment, but the Vulcan martial art that she named was uh, something that T'Pol was... uh, was she, she had exhibited nice. a lot of skill in that martial art in, I think it was a season two episode of Enterprise. Deep cut. Yeah, totally. And I love when, when it does those kind of deep cuts. And shout out to uh, Trek Corps, for pointing that out in their live tweet of the episode last night. But uh, Cicero, how about you? Final thoughts on the episode and how um, it positions I, You know, Michael I Brown? think
3: it, again, uh, I hate to call back to last week's first episode where we kind of talked about how uh, the first two episodes were a prelude and that you could have easily started your viewing of Discovery with episode three uh, and, and, and really not miss the beat. Um and you know and and not kind of it would have it it actually probably doesn't prejudice you against any of the characters, um at at that particular moment. So it, it, it you know for some for some people maybe that's the the ideal way to start is with episode three, um the I, you know I, again I I love. I love Michael Burnham as a character. I think that again, you know, like Zaki said, uh, she, she definitely had agency. Uh, she was definitely charismatic. Of course she could handle herself both intellectually and physically. Um, you know, it was clearly, clearly what, what, uh, they were able to kind of display right off the bat. And then of course, you know, she, she tells, uh, Lieutenant Commander Saru that she's not going to do anything, to uh to you know rattle the cage or or make any waves while she's on the ship and the first night she's there she's she's manipulating people's drool into breath so that she can sneak into <laughs> the secret you know behind closed doors uh meeting room or, or uh I guess like arboretum or whatever whatever that was that they had there this is, this is definitely the most creative yes, use of yes, saliva yes, in the trek franchise <laughs> absolutely i you know definitely. again i will say though uh you know as zaki so eloquently said this is not your father's star Trek and and when the credits started rolling at the end of this episode i i i did feel conflicted um because I was definitely enjoying myself but you have expectations of what Star trek is you've got 40 years, 50 years of of history there to kind of explain to you or 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 set your expectations for what uh Star Trek will be, a you know, a Star Trek television series will be and this is none of those things. Um ex- except for being within that, you know, except for sitting in that universe, the amount of conflict Now, you know, there is obviously there's conflict outside uh, when you're watching all of the other other shows. Um, But the amount of conflict within the crew, both both on the Sensu and and now here on the Discovery is I, I won't say alarming, but it is definitely jarring. It's definitely something that is is completely atypical. Uh, For for a Star Trek series, even Deep Space Nine, which was which was uh, riddled with conflict, didn't have conflict to the to the level that, you know, just in three hours of, of discovery that we've seen internally within this within within these two crews.
0: Sure. No, that's a that's a very good point. It challenges the the ideas of what makes Star Trek. Well, Star Trek. You know, and, if
1: uh, if I could just just uh, uh, react to that a little bit, I I do feel like it's it's within the realm of what we've seen thus far. I mean, if you look at it in the original series, I mean, there's like a straight up racist Starfleet guy who's mad at Spock because Romulans look like Vulcans, and he's yeah,
0: balance of terror, yeah, yeah, one of my favorites,
1: yeah. and 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 I think it's the Galileo Seven. They're all like, <laughs> right, they're like, right, like poor yeah. Spock is like, the, you know. I mean, there, there was it's, the Enterprise was like a receptacle
3: from some straight up racist Starfleet members. Well, know? yeah, but they weren't. <laughs> well, the, the the one thing was that those were members of the crew, and not you know not the commanding officers. These weren't the, these weren't officers. That's true. Uh, so, Fair point. So and just that's the, the amount of conflict from the officers uh, is 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 something. That's yeah, very different. that's true. That's a good point. Kirk did reprimand
0: Styles and told him to leave his bigotry in his quarters because there was no place for it on the bridge. I don't know if Lorca would take quite an active approach like that, but hey, who knows? He, he didn't Very say there's good true. people on both sides. <laughs> Kirk <and Kirkland. laughs> took a firm hand. Oh, excellent. Rachel, final thoughts on episode three and how it positions Michael Burnham?
2: Uh, well, I would say that I agree that it's definitely a, a modern TV show. And. Um, it falls into a lot of modern sensibilities with antiheroes and characters who aren't all good or all bad. Sure. Um, and I don't. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think that maybe the the idea of Star Trek can survive sort of these different permutations um, in in terms of of style of show.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. But again, it sort of remains to be seen whether or not they're going to have some sort of ideal to strive for um, right. a message for the season
0: well, as as Lorca said, you know there's it seems like uh, want and hunger are making a comeback. And that's, yeah, kind of an alarming piece of ideology to hear from a Starfleet captain. Uh, just for just for my final thoughts, I mean, Episode three, yeah, we spoke a little bit about how episodes one and two served as kind of a prologue and how it seemed, especially after watching this third episode, that this is what operated as a more traditional pilot. Uh, I'm still glad that we had the context of the first two, but I do think that there's value in, in seeing, oh, what if this is how we started things? It, it definitely would throw you into the deep end uh, in a way that is unique, but... Overall, uh, episode three, I found to be extremely enjoyable, and I'm very interested to see how things are going to be positioned going forward. Just a couple of things before we move on to listener questions, a couple of other continuity notes. So we got to see what a Jeffries tube looks like uh, on the class of ship. There were a few familiar locations at the very end when, when Burnham was doing her spore-warp trip, her tr- spore-transwarp walking trip through a, a few different locations. The obelisk that had... Do you remember the Kirok episode of the original series? Yeah. Where, you know, Kurt got a little bit of uh, of amnesia and and uh, adopted the norms of the society around him. The obelisk from that episode looked like it made an appearance, as did Starbase 11, which is a, one of the major locations of the original series, uh, particularly, court Martial, The episode where Kirk was court-martialed, uh, which was pretty cool to see. Uh, you know, the Crossfield-class ship seems like a um, a very interesting place. I thought that it was kind of a nice touch to see Saru pouring a bunch of salt in his tea. Uh, kind of gives you an idea of what what the guys uh, what the guys diet is like and what his tastes are like. And something that I also found on TrekCore that was interesting is that. There is an official standard galactic time that everybody seems to be operating off of, which I thought was a little bit of a, uh, of a nice touch and makes sense for a military ship. And of course, we already mentioned the Gorn skeleton. So a lot of nice little small cuts that make it clear that this is taking place in the universe that we all love so much. So now, as we get ready to wind down, let's do a couple of quick listener questions and open up the old communicator. So, the first question that we have is from Aaron Henley. Where did that Space Panther thingy come from? Was it beamed onto the ship during the test? Did it come from another dimension that got ripped open from the test? Does it have something to do with that thing the team found in the chamber? Zachy, what do you think? You got me. I'm going to keep watching.
1: There's my answer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really – it's not totally clear exactly where it came from, but it certainly uh, seems to give the crew a run for their money. So, Aaron, you're, as of right now, your guess is as good as ours, but we'll uh, we will definitely have to keep things – keep keep visible, you know, keep our view screens on, as it were. Uh, so from John Waldo, Cicero, I'm going to throw this to you. What is the most fun new idea that has been introduced in Discovery oh, thus far? Oh, man.
3: Uh – the most fun new idea. This is going to be controversial, but I I think it's the trans warp ma- mind meld. Um, but this is but this is a thing. Okay, that you know definitely is something you know from a character that we that we know from 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 the franchise and from the canon. Um, and and a a technique that is unique to Vulcans that we know from the canon. But this is a way that they. That they're using it that you've never seen before and quite possibly only works with these two individuals so um, you know I I would I wonder if that will be uh, re-explored later later in the series Um, but it's you know it's definitely something that is unique
0: yeah I think that's well said Uh, it it definitely does uh, bring about some some pretty far reaching implications. And I know Zach, you were in a conversation earlier today that I observed about the transwarp mind Meld and how it might have, uh, some roots in the, the wider Canon of the star Trek universe, but, yeah. uh, definitely explored in a unique way in unique discovery way, so. thus far. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so next question, uh, I will throw to Rachel. It's from Raphael Vera and shout out by the way, to the everything Star Trek group on Facebook. It's an awesome group. If you're a fan of the franchise, then I would definitely recommend joining it. But several of these questions came specifically from that group. So thank you guys. But Rachel from Raphael from Scotty's dictum, you kind of change the laws of physics. He thinks that it may have gone out the view screen with episode three in the way that uh, the, the project that discovery is working on is operating do you agree with that or do you disagree with that?
2: I think I agree with that. It doesn't make any sense, but obviously it's not going to work out because they don't have this technology in later series. Mm-hmm. So this technology is doomed. <laughs> so I'm maybe you can't change the laws of physics and they're going to find that out the hard way.
0: Maybe, maybe <laughs> even if you
2: have magical fungus. <laughs>
0: And uh, last question that we'll do, I will take this one also from Raphael. He says, how are they going to reconcile all of Discovery's tech within canon without destroying the ship in the series finale? You know, weirdly enough, it kind of makes me think of uh, the experiment in Next Generation where they talked about traveling on kind of a warp wave and how it didn't really end up working out for them. But they still gave it the old college try to see if it was something that they might be able to exploit. I kind of think that this is just going to end up petering out because clearly they're not going to want to destroy Discovery. At least I would seriously doubt that that's the case. I mean, who knows at this point, of course. But uh, I I just kind of have the feeling that this is going to end up being uh, either unsustainable for them or it's going to end up being something that is just completely unworkable in the fullness of time. But your guess is as good as mine and we will have to see. What happens next time? Well, any final thoughts before we, uh, before we depart, anybody, anything you guys want to plug, anything you guys would like to say before we, uh, before we set off into the unknown, Zachy? Uh,
1: you know, I, I, it tells you something that number one, I had a blast watching the episode, but as soon as it ended, I was like, man, I can't wait to talk to the guys and lady. (laughs) tomorrow and uh, have a great conversation so uh, i i want to throw my appreciation to you chris for getting this thing started because oh. uh, we're just two episodes in and i'm having a blast
0: me too man my pleasure and thank you for for coming aboard it's a it's a quite a thrill to have you with us every week uh so much obliged uh, I, Cicero, how I, about i'd you? like to
3: second what Zachy said um i I watched, you know, I watched the episode with, uh, you know, family with family, basically, and friends uh, yesterday, and then watched it again on my phone at work. Uh, hopefully, no one from work is watching is listening to this. Um, so, yeah, it was it definitely was great, and and uh, the thing that gets me most excited about it is is being able to talk to you guys about it.
0: Excellent, thank you. And and thank it you, of really course, for for jumping on with us too. It's, it's it's thank you very much, man. Much appreciated, Rachel.
2: Well, yeah. Thanks everybody for listening and for talking. And uh, if the Department of Defense, um, if you want to <laughs> give me money to do science, <laughs> I'm okay with that.
0: Want <laughs> to make that perfectly
3: clear.
0: Awesome. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I'm, like I said before, you know, we threw this together at the last minute, but having you two guys and of course having my wife with us is a huge thrill and a highlight for me every week. Obviously we all love Star Trek, so having a chance to talk about it, uh, is, is always great and hopefully you at home are enjoying Discovery Debrief thus far as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. Uh, so that's going to actually end up doing it for episode two. Of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you would be so kind, we would also appreciate it if you would write a review for the show, either on iTunes or on Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, which has actually changed from last week, but it's not going to change anymore. Promise. DSC debrief, because that's actually the official, uh, abbreviation for the show. So it made more sense. So apologies if uh, that's confusing, but yeah, DSC debrief on Twitter. You can also find all of our individual Twitter handles there and feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailing at discovery So please be sure to set your courses for this feed so you can come along with us next week to discuss Discovery's fourth episode. So for me, Chris, for Rachel, for Zaki, for Cicero, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, go boldly, my friends.